And I think all disciples have a moment in our lives that defines us, where we cross over from now on, where we go from fear and cowardice and like pushing back and making excuses and giving the top 10 reasons why that's not the smartest thing to do. And we cross over into courageous living, where we're surrendered. I want for my life as a surrendered believer to Jesus, to the way of Jesus, I want by my demonstrated life, by the way I live my life, I want people to go, what? are you doing? How are you doing that? Why are you living that way? Does the way that you live your life provoke those kind of questions? Jesus witness, the disciples witness, the early church's witness is that the demonstration of the power in our lives comes first. And then the questions come next. And then the answers are the proclamation. I'll tell you by what power and whose name I did this. I did it by Jesus. What every Christian should learn when they want to from now on with Jesus is this powerful act of surrender to the way and the will of Jesus will usher in a power in your life to allow you to live courageously in this world, courageously, both inside and out. Join us next Sunday as we hear a message from Danielle Strickland. Well, good morning, church. Uh, known Danielle uh, for many years. She uh, worked with my brother in ministry in Australia for a time, and then uh, she's worked in uh, California, ministered out there. Um, she's back in her home country now in Canada. And when I reached out to her, I thought, this is probably a long shot. And uh, she said she'd love to come to New Hope. And so I'm thrilled uh, to share her with you next week. And uh, we continue this series, The Search for Purpose. How much in our lives, when it comes to searching for something, it tends to weigh on the value of what we're looking for and whether the search uh, warrants continuing to look for it, whatever it might be. I want to tell you a story, and I have uh, permission of my sweet wife to tell this story. Um, in this story, I'm going to use a technique called inclusive language, and I think you'll be able to follow along. It's about five years ago, we lost my wife's engagement ring. We took it off this particular day, and we can't remember where we put it. I think you're tracking. So it's about five or six years ago, it was uh, around Christmas, and Steph said, I, uh, I, I think I took my engagement ring off um, in the living room. And so it was Christmas break, and so we were kind of uh, relaxed ab about it. We weren't going out at all, and so she wasn't looking to, to wear it as such, and then kind of it just didn't turn up. And so we realized, all right, we need, we need to start searching for this thing. And so we went in the living room, and we pulled off a cushion uh, off the couches, and we moved the couches, we moved... Um, the, the rugs and the side tables, and we couldn't find it anywhere. But uh, this was a pretty high-value item. It warranted us continuing to search. And so we went in the family room, we looked there, we looked in the kitchen, we looked in our cars, we looked in uh, our bedroom, and this search rolled into the next day, and then it rolled into the next week, and then it rolled into the next month, and then I think it was about two years. And Steph uh, just wore her wedding ring and no engagement ring for that 
for that whole time, and we were eager to find it. You know, we thought it would turn up at some point. Well, uh, we were going to move across town to another neighborhood, and uh, I had a whole lot of friends come over to help us move. Um, quick side note, if you want to move for free, ask people to come for two hours. I had 25 people help us, and they just came for two hours. That's the way to do it, by the way, side note. Okay, back, back to the story. All right, so we had the U-Haul, and, and a friend said, hey, guess what? You're going to find Steph's engagement ring in the move. And we were really excited about that. It like, made sense. Like We were going to like literally turn the, the house upside down by loading it on a U-Haul truck, and so we were sure we were going to find it. And so that whole day while we were moving, there was these moments when Steph would yell out, and I was picturing her like with this, running into the room that I'm in, I found it, I found it. And then I was imagining like moving a piece of furniture and me doing the same thing, calling out to her in the other room and coming and saying, I found it, I found it. That didn't actually happen. We never found that engagement ring. Now, don't worry, God did a cool thing and she's got another one and, and we won't take it off our finger now, okay? <laughs> Husbands, that's just how you do it, right? It's called inclusive language, right? We. Uh, the search for purpose in our life can be a little bit like that. It can feel like we're gonna one day have it in our hands and be able to share with someone. I found it, I found it. I found my purpose. But more often than not, that doesn't happen. And, and, and you picture that day, it's kind of this elusive day that you'll have this like seemingly golden nugget. Like God has told me his birth. The search for purpose in my life is over. I, I have it. The search for purpose is not actually like that in Scripture. I want to share a quote from Pastor Tony Evans. And, and I don't want to say this flippantly, but I want to use it as a launch pad. Listen to what Pastor Evans says. He says, if you are a Christian, you do not need to try to discover your purpose. Rather, it is in experiencing God that your purpose will be made known. Experience God and you will experience your purpose. Know God and you will know your destiny. So how does one begin to know God? This, this series, uh, we're gonna park in the book of Psalms. And in Psalms, we're gonna unpack this idea of the search of purpose through this particular book of the Bible. Scholars believe that it had more than seven authors over a 1,000-year period of time and broken into five parts. The, the divisions of five parts happened before the close of the Old Testament canon. And the purpose may be for the five parts to draw an analogy to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. It was very intentionally put together. The, the, the first couple of chapters of Psalm are very much introductory kind of flavors to them. And then the last four chapters, 146 to 150, uh, have a doxology kind of feel. That is an expression of praise. Furthermore, 
each book at the end specifically has a praise and thanksgiving verse at the end of each chapter, thanking God for who he is, and then it culminates in chapter 150, which is the doxology of doxologies. It is the last expression of praise to God. So here, I wanna show you this diagram of how it breaks in in five parts. See, the first part reflects Genesis, creation and man. Second part reflects Exodus, delivery and redemption. Third part is Leviticus, sacrifice and worship. The fourth part reflects numbers, human sin and God's faithfulness. And then the fifth part reflects Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, God's word and God's praise. And we're gonna walk through this under the banner of the search for purpose in our lives. And I'm gonna start in part one. Genesis, the beginning. I wanna look at the beginning of the search for purpose in our lives. Where does purpose begin? And with that, if I could ask you to please stand to your feet if you're able to for the reading of God's word this morning. So in part one of Psalms, it goes from uh, chapter one through to chapter 41. And I wanna park in Psalm 34 this morning, verse four to 14. And the word of God reads, I prayed to the Lord and he answered me. He freed me from all my fears. Those who look to him for help will be radiant with joy. No shadow of shame will darken their faces. In my desperation, I prayed and the Lord listened. He saved me from all my troubles. For the angel of the Lord is a guard. He surrounds and defends all who fear him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his godly people. For those who fear him will have all they need. Even strong young lions sometimes go hungry, but those who trust in the Lord will lack no good thing. Come, my children, and listen to me, and I will teach you to fear the Lord. Does anyone wanna live a life that is long and prosperous? Then keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Solomon, in the book of Proverbs, tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The fear of the Lord, this, this term relates to more the respect and reverence of God than actual fear in modern definition. Fearing God is knowing God. And this is where true purpose lies. Proverbs teaches that when we submit to God's will, he reveals his divine purpose in our lives. Therefore, the search for purpose begins with fearing God. The search for purpose begins with fearing God. But this smacks in the face of our culture, doesn't it? To, to think about fear. Uh, a recent poll revealed that of all the emotions people desire to avoid, rank number one is fear. 
Four out of 10 Americans want to avoid it. But this is everywhere in the Bible. Scripture repeats this over and over again, this concept that we are called to fear the Lord. So what is meant by it? What, what, what is meant by fearing God? It kind of feels conflicting to who we thought Jesus is. Isn't he love and gentleness and kindness, tenderness and forgiveness? All of these feel-good attributes that draw us towards him, a kind of irresistible grace and unconditional love and transforming hope in Christ. And although all of this is true, what is also true is that we are instructed in Scripture to fear God. The word fear in fearing the Lord is more nuanced than our English word has in our culture. Theologian Tremper Longman III says, the Hebrew word fear can be used of everything from anxiety to horror. There does not seem to be an exact English parallel to the sense in which it is meant here. But fear here certainly does not point to the type of fear that makes someone run away and hide like Adam in the Garden of Eden. Some suggest that the word should be understood as respect, but that word seems inappropriately weak. Perhaps the closest English word is awe. But even that word does not quite get it. The fear of the fear of the Lord is a sense of standing before the God who created everything, including humans, whose very continued existence depends on Him. So, to grasp this, we have to understand what is the difference in holy fear versus frightening fear. Holy fear versus frightening fear. John W. Yates II says, holy fear is a loving anxiety to please the one who loves you more than anyone else can ever love you. To fear God is to stand in awe of God. To be afraid of God is to run away from him. That is the difference between holy and frightening fear. I love uh, the words of Oswald Chambers when he writes, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear no one, nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. To remind us last week, Pastor Steve Carter said, when you anchor your life in Jesus, you have nothing to prove, nothing to lose, and nothing to hide. But come on, let's face it. This is not what our culture encourages. In fact, in our time and age, we, we kind of avoid negative emotions. It seems natural to want to avoid sadness, pain, and fear, but because of this, we tend to miss out on the value of these emotions. Think about it, it's sadness that helps us process in hard seasons. It's pain that warns us of additional danger. Fear recognizes threats, something or someone that is greater than us. We know that God is infinitely greater than any human being and therefore it is an appropriate and reasonable response that every human being should acknowledge, recognize with the awe and a reverent fear towards God. 
who is greater. Fear of the Lord actually leads to freedom and check this out, purpose in our lives. It allows us to fully recognize the Lord's dominion and providence and how minuscule our everyday fears are, listen to this, compared to that of being in the presence of a holy God. So let me circle back to our initial question. What does it mean to fear God and to discover purpose? Again, John W. Yates, he lists three things. The first is it means to be in awe of God. To be completely and unquestionably in awe of God. To have your whole being overwhelmed by the majesty and splendor of an almighty God. For that to include your intellect, your emotions, spiritually and physically, you are astounded by His holiness, God's power, His purity, His righteousness, His justice and His glory. Scripture actually teaches that no human being can withstand the presence of a holy God and live. A human being cannot contain that level of awesome wonder, of the power of pure righteousness. It is simply too overwhelming for the human being to contain. There's no force above the earth, below the earth, or on the earth that can rival the uncorrupted power of the Lord of hosts. The one who has at his disposal the intensity of the angelic armies. This is the Lord of hosts. To fear God is to be in complete and unquestionable awe. Secondly, it's to have reverence for God. Scripture illustrates to fall down, prostrate on one's face, powerless before a holy God, to exalt, to honour, to adore in worship the one who is worthy of it all. In fact, in the Old Testament, the Israelites had such a high reverence for the Lord, they would not say his name out loud. The covenant name of God, the name that God shared with his people was the name Yahweh. This name was so sacred that they refused to even pronounce it out loud. When ancient Jewish rabbis would read from the text, when they got to the word Jehovah and the name Yahweh, they refused to read it out loud. That is reverence. Too holy to even speak his name. To be awestruck by the holiness of God in our lives. Several years ago, I was in Las Vegas uh, with a friend and we took one of those helicopter excursions to the Grand Canyon. It was a, an amazing experience. We, we, we got into this helicopter at uh, Las Vegas and we flew across the desert floor. It, it felt like we were like 10 feet from the ground, and for 45 minutes, uh, we flew across the flat Nevada desert. That would have been enough for me. <laughs> that was such an awesome experience. 
But then suddenly the desert floor vanished from beneath us and we went over the top of the Grand Canyon. The, the, the pilot said, hey, uh, I always like to ask uh, people, you know, kind of what level of extreme flying they want me to do. And it was uh, me and a friend and, and, and one other couple. So there was five of us in the chopper and uh, we kind of like, do, do whatever, you know, you want. And so he proceeded to fly the chopper down into the canyon across the cliff faces and sudden turns and, and, and then he'd fly upwards into the sky and then out into the desert floor and then back down in the canyon again and we were losing our lunch and screaming and <laughs> it was amazing. And then he said, like, okay, you guys seem to handle that okay. And so I just ask uh, passengers if they want to do this. A lot of people don't want to do it. But um, I can take you to a place uh, that the canyon is a 1,000 yards deep from the desert floor. And I can land the chopper on a, a rock's edge. Do you want to do that? <laughs> and all right, you know. And so he starts to drop the chopper down. And there's this tiny little rock that he's gonna land this chopper on. And we're like, okay, I think he knows what he's doing. <laughs> uh, anyway, he comes down 500 yards and lands the chopper just on this small little rock face. And uh, as we land, we just kind of see the face of, of the Grand Canyon on that side. And, and all the way down is 500 yards and, and, and all the way up is 500 yards. And, and, and we get out of the chopper and it's just dead silence. And, and all we can hear is the last rotations of the blades. And, and the four of us stood on the edge, looking down, looking up. And there was no sign that said no talking. And it wasn't like when the pilot brought us in, he said, when you get out of the chopper, there is no talking. There was none of that. But yet the four of us were so awestruck with the power of nature that we did not say a word. My friend's a pastor and he and I commented that we were standing on holy ground and there was angels gathered all around. The power of the creation by the creator. You see, when you have an encounter with a holy God, it causes this kind of awe and wonder of the holiness of God and you are speechless. There is nothing to be said. And the contrast of God's holiness and our sinfulness. But when we encounter God, we encounter the wonder and awe of a holy God, causing us to tremble in His presence, to tremble in obedience, to wanna be a more moral person, to wanna live more pure and pleasing to this holy God that we have encountered. And this leads us on to the third sense of the feeling of, 
fearing God and what it means. Fear God to not desire to dishonor or disappoint God. The fear of dishonoring and disappointing a holy God. It's a holy fear that is present in your life when the, when the awe and wonder in your life is so increased that causes you not to want to disappoint God, that your behavior or your actions would dishonor Him. In the book, Fearing the Lord by John Brevere, he interviews uh, the late TV evangelist Jim Baker, and he interviews him from prison in the backdrop of moral failure and financial fraud from behind bars, Jim Baker is asked the question, when did you stop loving Jesus? And Jim Baker says, I never stopped loving Jesus, I stopped fearing God. I never stopped loving Jesus, I stopped fearing God. Maybe as I say that, there is someone that comes to mind. Maybe, if I can say it like this, maybe that person is sitting in the seat you're sitting in. Who at one point in their life was uh, an encouragement in your faith story. Actually inspired you, helped you in taking uh, progression in your spiritual life. But then something happened and their behaviors and their actions were no longer congruent with someone who is a follower of Jesus. More often than not, it isn't that that person has stopped loving Jesus, it's that they've stopped fearing God. See, the the fear of God is accountability in our life. It drives us towards holiness in our lives. Fear of God is, is not to meant to be like the the imagery of being sent in school to the the headmaster's office because your behavior is unacceptable. That's not the imagery here. The, The imagery is that the accountability of comparison between your life and your behavior to that of a holy God causes you to move towards holiness in your life. You desire more of that call of holiness. And so therefore, when we knowingly and deliberately live in opposition to the ways of God in our life, the level of awe and wonder of God is belittled. It's decreased in our lives. You see, each and every one of us have exactly the same invitation for the holiness in our lives, to be invited to know God and to know our purpose, to come closer to holiness in our lives. We all have exactly the same invitation. See what happens, it's it's tax season right now. And so one of you will choose to sit down and fill out your return and the fear of God in your life has been belittled, therefore, you won't be completely honest with that tax return. 
You will fudge the numbers, leave out some of your earnings, and when you do that, the awe and wonder of a holy God in your life is decreased. It's belittled. Then another one of you will come to your tax return. Aware of a holy fear of God in your life, you will strategically and meticulously find every piece of earnings. Oh, I remember that cash earnings that I had no paperwork for. I'm gonna include that. I'm not gonna fudge the numbers where I could have. Why? Because the holy fear of God in your life is bringing the character of God into your life and a greater awareness of your purpose in life. And guess what happens? When you do that, the awe and wonder of a holy God in your life increases. Exactly the same invitation on the two people filling out their tax returns. Maybe you're dating someone and you feel confident that this person is gonna uh, be your husband or be your bride and you have one of those temptation moments where there's the threshold over into intimacy. But because of the holy fear of God in your life, you stand put, you don't step over that threshold. And in doing so, the awe and wonder of a holy God increases in your life when you say no to that temptation. Just like the person who steps over that threshold and into the bedroom, that person then puts aside the holy fear of God in their life and the awe and wonder of a holy God is belittled and decreased in their life. Maybe you're at the club with uh, some friends and it gets to about 10 o'clock on Saturday night and, and you know where you're gonna be tomorrow and you want your behaviour uh, today to honour God tomorrow. You want what you did yesterday to honour God today. And so it gets to about 10 o'clock and you're like, I, I just have a healthy, holy fear of God in my life and, and I'm gonna slip out now. Because from about now onwards, nothing holy happens. There's another one of you that you're just having so much fun in the club, dancing it up, and the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes on you and you reject the holiness of God and you stay on and you have a few more drinks and a few more drinks and it's now 3 a.m. Now hear me, this is not shame that I'm preaching right now. This is the invitation that we all have, that we all choose the holiness of God in our lives. Yes. And you stay on to 3 a.m. And in that behavior, that action that you took, that you decided to keep God's holiness at arm's length in your life, the awe and wonder of a holy God is belittled in that moment. And the distance between your purpose is lengthened. And you see other friends, spiritual friends, seeming to have time after time of hearing the voice of God and you wonder, why does God not speak to me? There is something when you say yes to holy living, yes to God's call on your life, yes to purity, 
Yes to living the way that God has called us to live in honesty and integrity. And it, and it welcomes the character of God unto our lives. It ushers in the character of God unto our lives. So often in the church, we've taken this concept of the fear of God and we've, we've pushed the pendulum so far the other way that we landed at a destination called legalism. I wanna talk about legalism for a quick moment. Here's how I wanna talk about legalism. I was 19, 20 years old. Uh, a group of friends and I were on fire for God. We had young adult service on Saturday night at church, and then on Sunday we had uh, morning service and night service. Many of you grew up in a church, you had night service, that was my uh, dealio. And uh, anyone who had a heartbeat, we were inviting them to church at, at this time. And we were talking about it and praying about uh, friends together, like who could we invite to come? We were just so eager to see uh, the move of God happen on friends' lives. And so uh, there was this young guy, he was 19 years old. Um, he was a, a friend of the friends of mine. And we knew his story well. His story was a heartbreaking story of uh, abuse, both physically, emotionally, verbally. As a young teenager, he was kicked out of home, told that he was of no value and not wanted here. And so he learned that authority in his life was a negative and anything that represented any sense of authority, he had grown up to define that as someone that would physically lay hands on him and tell him that he was of no value and not wanted. So when my friends invited him to church, he equated that to authority. He said, absolutely not. And we prayed for him and my friends kept inviting him and this went over months and over a couple of years until we were all elated. On one particular Sunday night, he said that he would come. And we prayed and prayed that he would experience an encounter with a holy God on this Sunday night service. I remember my friends met him in the parking lot and he had... Uh, uh, runners on and, and oversized baggy jeans, a, an oversized t-shirt and a ball cap. And we said, come on, come on in. And uh, he came into the lobby and uh, in the worship center of, of, of my church then, there were, there were four sets of doors, but all the young adults just used this set of doors on the left side of the church. It was, this was our section. And this uh, young guy comes in, he's so nervous, never been in church before. And uh, we are so excited to have him there. And, and we come through the lobby and we come to the doors and we get to the doors as he steps into the worship center. Uh, an usher leans over and aggressively steals his hat off his head and smacks him in the back of the head. And he said, there are no hats in church. This is a place of reverence. And this young man stole his hat back, put it on his hat, on his head, did a 180 
and walked straight out the door. You see, his entire life, he had been told that he's of no value and that he's not wanted here. And the church is no different. You see, I believe that Jesus was less concerned with that young man's hat than he was his heart. I believe that Jesus' heart towards this young man was that he would encounter irresistible grace, unconditional love, and a transforming hope. You say, have I got an address for that? I'll give you an address. Let's try John 3:17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You want to wear a hat in church? I just believe in a Jesus who is about your heart, not about your hat. That's legalism, folks. I'm not talking about legalism today. I'm talking about growing towards the call of holiness in our lives. And when we do, we discover greater purpose in our lives. When the search for purpose, it's found in the pursuit of holiness. And we all have exactly the same invitation to take our actions and our behaviours and put them alongside a healthy, holy fear of God where it is His awe and His wonder that cause us to fall on our face. In Joshua chapter five, when he has an encounter with the, with the commander of the Lord's army, his response is to fall face first into the dirt. You know, it's interesting in, in this in this passage in Psalm 34, in, in verse seven, uh, it talks about those who fear God. In verse nine, it talks about those who fear God. Then in verse eight, sandwiched between these two, listen to this, you've heard it probably before. Verse eight reads, taste and see that the Lord is good. For that young man that came into church that night, when the church tastes bad to the lost world, the church has lost its way. Taste and see that the Lord is good being called towards holiness in our lives is to be drawn into the goodness of God. It's been drawn to a place where you can taste and see that the Lord is good. It drives us to a place, as, as Steve said last week, that the fruit on our lives would be love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and goodness and self-control. I want 
I want those things in my life. When you hear those fruits of the Spirit, it, it comes, something inside you connects that to a holy God. It says, I wanna take up that call for holiness in my life so that I exhibit more of those fruits in my life. So that a young 19 year old comes with a, a horrible broken background and Jesus wants to encounter him with irresistible grace, with an unconditional love, with a transforming hope. It's beautiful. The call of the church is to come, taste and see that the Lord is good. He's good. Maybe in your life, there's something as you've been listening to me this morning that, that you feel like, ah, this is not congruent to being a follower of Jesus. Then let me remind you, John 3, 17. The Father's heart in His redemptive plan was not to condemn you, but to save you to bring you to a place of repentance and confession before a holy God and to taste and see that the Lord is good. Why? Because He gives you forgiveness. A fresh new start. A brand new beginning today that you can say yes to the call towards holiness in your life. Say no to the temptations of the enemy. Taste and see. God has uh, really strategically used this sense, the sense of taste, through human history. In the, in the beginning with uh, the, the Israelites, he, he had them eat bitter things around Passover. It's recorded in Exodus 12, so that they would remember the bitterness of slavery and captivity in Egypt. He has designed for us who are part of the new covenant uh, an element of tasting as part of our worship service. And, and, and Jesus consecrated bread and wine because they are just everyday regular things. He, he, he didn't take, I don't know, Coca-Cola and candy, right? He took bread because it's universal and we all need it for our sustenance and it reminds us that Jesus is the one who sustains us. Wine has always been included throughout human history at, at weddings, at parties, at celebrations. It reminds us of something good and Jesus consecrates the wine and when we partake of the Lord's Supper, it reminds us that we are to celebrate what was bitter for Jesus, was joyous and glorious to us. It brought our salvation. And so if you are able, if you would take your communion elements and stand to your feet, if you didn't receive them on the way in, the ushers are around and you can simply put up your hand.
we should think carefully about the symbolism of the bread and the juice. So if you go ahead and peel back and reveal the bread. As we consume the bread, let us remember and recall how Christ nourishes our bodies and nourishes us spiritually. As we eat and remember, let us eat. Go ahead and peel back, revealing the juice. As we drink the wine, let me say again, we remember, we recall the bitterness of the cruel Roman bloodstained cross that Jesus gave his life on. The bitterness and the humiliation and how he freely shed his blood for us. And we approach this sacred holy meal with the joy that is brought in trusting in the name of Jesus. Let us drink and remember. So Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the almighty, holy, holy being. That you are a God that is in command of all things. And our only right response before you is awe and wonder at the holiness of God. So Father, would you take this teaching today that I was unworthy to give. God, how is it that you had me speak about your holiness? I'm so unworthy to do that. God, we're unworthy to speak your name for your holiness. But, Jesus, thank you that you didn't hold back your most precious, but you sent the treasure of heaven to make a way that we would know and be called towards holiness in our lives. And in doing so, our search for purpose is discovered. God, I pray right now by the ministry of your Holy Spirit in this house that you would bring by your conviction of your spirit those that need to take some time in a few moments just to confess before you and to receive your forgiveness in this place. Father, we are so grateful we live under the new covenant, <laughs> the covenant that made a way that we could be made right before you. We could say sorry, and now would you please fill me with the power and presence to do better, to live towards your holiness in our lives. So this is our prayer, God. We pray it in the sacred, and matchless name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.